For December 27th, 2021, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 704. Why do bad Christmases happen to good people? Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like, well, we're like a, a band of merry gentlemen who uh, who gather at this time of all times to say, God bless us, every one. Uh, I am uh, Matt Rather, and I am no gentleman, but I am uh, I am joined by two uh, merry merry gentlemen, uh, Pete Fenzel, Pete, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Matt. And Jordan Stokes. Merry Christmas, Jordan. And to all a good night. We are pre-taping. Wait, <laughs> Sorry, wrong, wrong. Too short, too short a literary work to uh, to get a whole podcast out of. Though we we certainly should try. We're pre-taping this episode. Um, we're you know taking the the weekend of Christmas off for our various celebrations. Uh, you know, truncated or altered or you know. Um, Re, you know, replanned, scaled down, pared back, though, uh, though they may be by the, the latest, um, the latest round of playoffs in the championship season. Uh, I make, I make that joke not, uh, I make that joke not to trivialize anyone's suffering. I make it as a, as a bulwark against the heaviness that we all, uh, must feel at this time in, uh, amid this, this lightest of holidays. And we, uh, we were sort of thinking of what we could do, especially since, um, the, you know, we record on Sundays. So, Sunday would be the day after Christmas and it would come out very, you know, very close to the actual day of Christmas. And we decided uh, to reunite the uh, Overthinking It uh, literary seminar, um, the the short works, <laughs> the 3000 word literary seminar that that we uh, convened earlier for Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and to uh, read and talk about Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Uh, this, you know, this came about in typically convoluted fashion as we were chatting back and forth in our text channel about what, uh, uh, what to talk about. So, uh, we're, we're here to talk about Charles Dickens, uh, spoiler alert for, uh, all seasons, all books of Charles, Charles Dickens, a Christmas care. Spoiler alert for the film Scrooged. Uh, spoiler alert for the film, uh, A Muppet Christmas Carol. For the film Mickey's Christmas Carol. Uh, for anything with Christmas Carol. Spoiler alert for Carol Kane. Uh, spoiler alert for Carol Burnett. Spoiler alert for uh, for uh, any any sort of Carol uh, for Carolers, Caroling, and um, Carolons. Any bells that you hear, we are going to spoil uh, for you now. For uh, as as Scrooge is awakened by a great peeling of bells on the day that turns out to be Christmas Day in uh, the fifth stave of A Christmas Carol. So we too have been awakened by reading Charles Dickens' uh, A Christmas Carol, a, a, a work I think we encounter more in adaptations than we encounter in the original. But we commend to you the original. Uh, it, can, it It's available. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's, you know, it's available in ebook form really anywhere you want to look online it's in the public domain and it's uh it, it can be read in an hour and it's it's just a delight though i it's only me perhaps who thinks that i don't know if if uh the other panelists think it's a delight and we will find out now now when i was young i thought that ebenezer was uh his title and not his first name i thought that you know as you might be judge scrooge or you know sergeant at arms scrooge or uh, uh, grand moff scrooge 
Right, exactly. That Ebenezer Scrooge was his title, but it is, in fact, uh, his name. A wonderful fact to to reflect upon. And I intend to use the words uh, wonderful, horrible, and hopeful, as Dickens used them, uh, in their their pure adverbial sense and not as, as sentence, uh, not as sentence adverbs. A wonderful fact to reflect upon. In fact, I think it was you, Jordan, who who typed into our text channel in where in where we uh, uh, where we were prepping that. Uh, Charles Dickens sat down and said, I'm going to name him Scrooge. Yeah, it's such a wild thing, right? Because that's a word that even people who have never read A Christmas Carol, they know Scrooge because of Scrooge McDuck. And it's just like, it's a word that you can you can call somebody a Scrooge. I don't think it's something that actually gets said a lot, but people will still know what you mean if you say that. Sure. So it's just become like a normal word. Honestly, like I think that normally when I think of this book, I think, ah, it's a little on the nose calling him Scrooge. But it wasn't <laughs> a thing, right? In, in, until Dickens just was just like, I need a name. I don't care if it sounds like a real name. I just need it to sound like an asshole. And he's like, Scrooge. <laughs> um, Pete, do you, do you have thoughts about the phonological uh, aspects of Scrooge's name? I mean, I guess it sounds like screw, which uh, I'd need to look at a uh, OED. I'd need to look at a historical dictionary to see if it had the, you know, the connotation of do dirty in business, but also like tightening the screw, the turn of the screw, right? Like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the phonology of Scrooge's name? I think the proper way to spell it is S-C-R-U with an umlaut over it, uh, G-E. <laughs> Right. Scrooge. 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 <laughs> Scrooge <laughs> um, open for Kraftwerk. <laughs> Epinesa Scrooge uh, is, uh, is, is designed with a brand new electric toothbrush that I use. Uh, I, I thought reading this book, I don't think I've read the book. I performed the play for a few years, a few Christmases in a, in a nonprofit historical society. And I'm familiar with a bunch of the adaptations, but I don't know if I'd read the book. It amused Pete, me how much uh, of a Pete, is, what? is there a for-profit historical society? Uh, Facebook, I guess. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. I'm sorry. It amused you. You were saying it amused you how much that what? Oh, how much of a parody Scrooge seems to be in the book relative to a lot of the adaptations, though upon reflection – Part of the issue might be that as a child, I didn't think it was strange for someone to be a duck, right? So like, uh-huh. when you think about Uncle Scrooge, <laughs> right, you know, they made Ebenezer Scrooge into a duck. <laughs> and uh, if you think, well, yeah, of course, I'm a child. Every major character is a talking animal. This is entirely normal. <laughs> but um, it might, in fact, be a bit of a reflection on the fundamental absurdity of the situation. Uh, it's funny in A Muppet Christmas Carol that Scrooge is the only human because he's not the most human of the people in the story. Uh, it's it's weird that Fezziwig is a Muppet and and Scrooge is Michael Caine rather than not necessarily the other way around because I think Michael Caine would be miscast as Fezziwig. But he can play anything. He's just a chameleon. Transform. So I think this is. I, I mean, I think what you say is really important because people people encounter this story in a participatory fashion, as you have by doing it in a in a nonprofit historical society by performing in a, a theatrical adaptation. People see it in 
I, you know, I don't know a lot of, a lot of theaters. It's like Black Friday when, when a Christmas Carol opens, uh, Black Friday in the sense that that's the name of that we give to the day. And also that's the name that their, their account books, you know, tip into, to positive territory because it's the only thing that most theaters do that people want to buy tickets to all year is to see, uh, a Christmas Carol over and over and over. There are a bunch of, of theaters, uh, I, you know, that I know that I've been involved with that do, that do it. Uh, Bradley Whitford, he of, of the West Wing was, uh, has been actually doing it in Los Angeles, doing a theatrical adaptation of it, uh, where he plays Ebenezer Scrooge. It's, it's hard to think of, you know, young and hearty Josh Lyman actually, you know, having become aged into, uh, aged into Ebenezer Scrooge, but it was uh, it was canceled because someone in the cast uh, tested positive for COVID, and they so they took I guess two weeks off uh, for everyone to quarantine, and that's you know that bah bah I say um, bah. So, so, fu- to fully answer your question, it is apparently an 18th century variant of the word scrounge, which huh. meant to push or jostle or or sort of take to sort of rummage or pilfer. Uh, roughly through somebody uh, through somebody's stuff, so it's sort of a combination of uh, a cheat and a pickpocket is mm. a Scrooge. Uh, I would I would suggest um, based on the brief etymological research that I've done in the last fifteen seconds. Oh, that's that's so. interesting. I mean, Jordan, you called it the great anti-capitalist novella uh, of Christmas. So as a as a Scrounge is you know is Ebenezer Scrooge a horrifying figure of the uh, of the machinery of capitalism. So this was one of the things that I was uh, I was sort of taking notes as I read, is that um, you kind of ex- you kind of expect Scrooge to be more of a criminal than he actually is. I mean, if you think of um, Scrooge McDuck, he does a lot of looting and pillaging, right? Although not of people not of people who live in first world countries. So I guess it's kind of uh, comes out in the wash. Um, but then the other big adaptation that I think of is the Bill Murray movie Scrooged, where he's like, he's not just an ordinary businessman. Like there are things that he's doing that are very unsavory. If I remember that one correctly, whereas Dickens Scrooge is just like, he's just an ordinary stockbroker or something like that. Or he, he works on the exchange, he, right? I'm mortgage. Not, I'm not is, sure. he, is he, is he a mortgage he's dealer? A, he's a money lender. Yeah. Money lender. Got it. Got, yeah. it, got it. Um, and like, that enough that is enough to to go to hell for that's that's a big point in um in marley's speech is that doing business is not what you're on earth to do and the first ghost that scrooge sees is not one of the christmas ghosts it's marley right who is um you know who is they don't quite say that he's in hell but he definitely is so they they allude to it and then he looks out the window and he sees like a whole bunch of ghosts which i had completely forgotten about or like all the rich people who have ever been in london who have all suffered the same fate and they're all like trying to help people desperately but they can't because they're held down by their chains of all the money that they made in life and if the book stopped right there, it would be like really dramatically anti-capitalist, saying that making money is just a horrible thing uh, and that anyone who ever seeks to make money is endangering their immortal soul, which, to be fair, there is biblical support for that view. Huh. As you go on through the book, though, I think that it gets a lot more complicated, a lot harder to sustain the idea that capitalism is bad because there are various good capitalists that show up. Yeah, I'm not sure what Fezziwig is. Like he's is he, you know, is he a moneylender like Scrooge and Marley turn out to be or is he 
you know, engaged in some other trade or some other enterprise, but like, uh, he's, he's definitely beneficent, you know, he, he's generous and, and sort of, and sort of high spirited. And I, I, I don't know, like, uh, I, th- I think, um, like Charles Dickens spent some time in debtor's prison. And I think it colored his view of the, of the uh, enterprise of money lending, probably. Yeah, I think one of the points they make is not so much that it's a zero-sum game between your ability to conduct business and everything else that you do in your life, but rather that there's a bit of a complex causal relationship behind it in terms of what's the dog and what's the tail, but paying attention to money is either a cause or an effect of neglecting other things in life that are more important. So it's not necessarily bad to do business provided that you're also doing charity and you're also right you know uh, celebrating child children and helping the needy and and also loving the people that you know are your neighbors and all this other stuff right um it's not this is not a book that's against uh, patronage uh it, it just it just suggests that both the reason that Scrooge is doing this is because the other parts of him are broken and are being neglected right and also that being sucked into this cycle of wanting to what of gain is what he calls it right uh of gain is a thing that causes everything else to diminish and that is what thickens the chain that you've attached yourself to is the sort of focus on making money um as as in in substitute for the other things that you should be doing um i think i mean that was how i read it not this in, in that it's not like they need to kill Scrooge and take his money, but rather that Scrooge needs to give more of his money to the poor. It's, um, Oh yeah. Jordan. Oh, I was just going to say that like, it's, um, the, the, the relationship with money is complicated, right? Because mm-hmm. definitely at the end, the thing that, Scrooge does is he starts tossing his money around and does a lot of Christmas good, I guess we could call it. Um, I think that this book has a metaphysical concept of Christmas good. And the money is a tool that you can use to do that. And and yet, I don't think that it quite says that it's good to have money because this gives you the power to do more good. Because, like, the you can be very good while being very poor. And there's a, there's a particular passage in the Fezziwig sequence where um, Scrooge, like past Scrooge and present Scrooge are both saying how great Fezziwig is. And the ghost of Christmas past is like, what that cost him like $4. And uh, Scrooge has this passage, which I think is kind of interesting. It says, it isn't that, said Scrooge, heated by the remark and speaking unconsciously like his former, not his latter self. It isn't that spirit. He has the power to render us happy or unhappy, to make our service light or burdensome, a pleasure or a toil. Say that his power lies in words and looks, in things so slight and insignificant that it is impossible to add and count him up. What then? The happiness he gives is quite as great as if it cost a fortune. And what I think is interesting about that is that it like it really makes um, makes room for the possibility of a moral billionaire, right? In a way that that I, in my more anarchist and communist moods, might not want to make room for. You know, there, there's a, there's another way that you could say, look, anybody who has that much money needs to give it all away. 
But Fezziwig gets to stay rich, right? What makes him good is that he's good to the people around him and sort of and has a rich network of social connections with his family, with his employees, with the whole neighborhood, and fully takes part in the celebration with them. And that's kind of the model of morality. So, like the money, the money hardly enters into it there. Although it is significant the way that he's using his power, right? That Scrooge uses his power to um, to hurt everyone around him that he can, at least at the beginning of the book. Whereas Fezziwig uses it to try to make people happy. Um, so that was, that was that was kind of the. I had been taking notes about how it was very anti-capitalist, and then I got to that passage, and I was like, well, mm, it really you could be a capitalist and a good person in this book, and we, right. we see that happening. Yeah, another angle, the one that that Fred says that then gets doubled down on a little bit later, and that comes up a couple times is is okay. So he has money, but he doesn't enjoy it. He doesn't make himself comfortable with it, and he doesn't give it. He doesn't give it to us, right? But also, he doesn't give it to anybody else. And that sort of points out the idea that those are two things that you could do with money that would be defensible. This isn't a book that's against enjoying your money, providing that you're enjoying it with other people. And there's also a bunch of talk about when you see people in the street, do you say, come see me, come, you know, come hang out with me? Do you try to hang out with other people? And that's presented as as much of a social necessity as charity is and as much of a failure as Scrooge in Scrooge's moral makeup as his stinginess is his closed offedness. And what it makes me think of is the two super creepy, sallow children who I don't remember appearing in a lot of the adaptations at all. Right. Ignorance and want. Are they the two? Yep. Um, yeah. So, and I have to think under, I know who are kind of who are kind of cowering under the robe of Christmas present. Right, right, right. And so, I, the other thing that makes Dickens not a communist is that he's religious, <laughs> and uh, and he sees the whole setup as it is and ought to be fundamentally a good thing. And we'll talk about. I think we can talk more about that whole angle on it a bit later. But from the perspective of all this, it's saying, okay, what is what is produced where. Why do bad Christmases happen to good people is a question that this, this book asks, right? And I think the answer is that it's ignorant. If we think ignorance and want and we think, okay, you have money, you don't give it to people. You don't give it to people who need it. You don't give it to anybody. You also aren't aware of what other people are experiencing because part of the system of connected ills and sins that happens when you withdraw into money-making and into great gain, right, and avarice, is that you don't know what's happening out there. You don't know. I mean, they they talk about it at length in the book with Tiny Tim to a much greater degree than in any of the adaptations I can think of where, I mean, the, the ghost mocks him. You know, oh, decrease the surplus population. This kid is the surplus population. Now that you've met him, do you want him to die? Right? That's what it means when you're a Malthusian <laughs> and you think that we need to, like, you know, cut down on all the useless people is that you haven't thought about the fact that the useless people exist, that you might know them, they live near you, and that they matter as much as you do. So it's interesting that these are not ideas that I often think of as connected. But that in this story, seem very strongly connected. The idea of being greedy and the idea of being isolated, uh, pulled away from every, from your community, uh, is, it seems like they have something to do with each other. It's interesting how Scrooge McDuck is different from Ebenezer Scrooge there, because Scrooge McDuck, even even like the kind of unreconstructed Scrooge McDuck that we never really get to see before his nephews like get into his life, he still is a happy guy. 
because he's swimming in the money bin. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yes. Like, yeah. For, for, for him, the point of money is that you get to roll around in it. He enjoys <laughs> it in a way that, that Ebenezer Scrooge never would. Um, but he is still missing that kind of human connection. So if like he, that, if that's he were the, to look out the window into Duckburg, he would see that life is like a hurricane. Right. <laughs> here in here in Duckburg. <laughs> here in Duckburg. Uh, there's race cars, there's lasers, there's aeroplanes. It's madness. It's a, I mean, I'd call it uh it's like a duck themed my, my vision is indistinct. Um yeah. I think it's I find I find it difficult to kind of dig into these ideas because as Pete said, it they're they belong to things that are not necessarily uh they're not necessarily connected. Um in my uh but I'll I'll say that like in in my headcanon of Karl Marx, it's it's see, <laughs> you know. like Karl Marx is the only person who ever advocated helping poor people. Yeah, exactly. And his way of mocking and his way of doing it, just because they killed all the people who had different ideas doesn't Karl, mean the ideas didn't exist. Karl Marx, who is who is historically, in point of historical fact, the only critic of capitalism that has ever emerged in the Or of rich people. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Through Jesus. Uh, in the long <laughs> in the long well, Scrooge Jesus. Um, yeah, there you but the uh, in the long yeah in the long history of human endeavor, um, I I think of I think of him as um, like seeing British uh, British uh, industrial the British industrial revolution not the like the continental industrial revolution but the the you know I don't know the the demeaning you know grinding you down sort of British industrial revolution and the the factories and the soot and the smog of London and and you know he- heading straight home to write the communist manifesto I, this is completely inaccurate uh historically but there there's something about Britain in the time of of Dickens that is is practically Frankly, I struggle for an adjective to, uh, I, fr- I struggle to, for an adjective to dis- describe it. There's not a lot of room Dystopian? for, uh, Dick, uh, yeah, it's, uh, dysto- it's definitely starts with a D. Um, the, uh, pee pee is that to use the, uh, is that what Blake would, uh, that, that poem that Blake has about the children dying in the chimneys, right? Because they're chimney sweeps. Isn't it peep, peep, peep is what the children say when they're stuck in the chimneys? Um, you know what I'm talking about, right? I do. Yeah. I think it's chim chimney chim chimney chim chim crew. <laughs> that's right. That's yeah, right. Sweep, a sweep, when you're with a sweep, you're in glad company. Glad they're 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 happy with their lot in life because uh, step in time. Um, you know, uh, there there isn't a lot of room. I mean, as as I was trying to think of think of sort of what so what if if this is bad sort of what is good right if if the bad is like okay it's possible to have a good billionaire but uh not a good selfish billionaire but also kind of not a good introverted billionaire right like not a good um socially disconnected billionaire because all the good um images of christmas they're connected with generosity they're they're connected with um they're connected with with kind of fellow feeling uh that in in like one of the to me one of the more important phrases in the book is fellow travelers to the grave uh that is to say you can look at people as though they are kind of alien to you or as though they are fellow travelers to the grave and that that the proper way to look at them is as fellow travelers to the grave and that that like um you know something about something about mortality and kind of the the shared terror of mortality and how we hold that off how holding it off is like a common endeavor uh the way you the way you play a game perhaps at christmas where you like 
you know, uh, tip a balloon into the air and everyone has to like, you know, hit it with their fingers to, to, to keep it up. Like in, in order to, to hold off our, at, at this darkest time of year, in order to, to hold off our, our terror about mortality, we have to, um, sort of make merry in, in these, uh, in these particular ways. But it's also sociability, right? They're all, they're all, really social scenes even even the the like the the corpse robbers you know like are kind of having a party at the pawnbroker's house uh or the, the office uh business place of business when they're when they're together and there isn't a lot of room it, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of room for introverts you know in the positive dickensian view of christmas and a christmas carol it's really striking, actually, because uh, one of the scenes in the Christmas Past episode shows Dickens when he's alone at the like the horrible boarding school right. that his horrible castrating father sent him to, right? Mm. And this is before he's fallen, right? But he is alone, and he's doing a very introverted thing to do over the Christmas holidays, which you know I, I imagine that probably all three of us can relate to, like reading a whole bunch of books. But then the the form that that takes is that he actually kind of hallucinates the characters in the story, like they actually appear in the room such that grown-up Scrooge can also see them. So the, the like the proper way to be introverted, if you're a good person, is to read with such intensity that there are actually other people there with you. So there's something about like having a lot of people around then seems to be really, really primary um, to, to Dickens's idea of the Christmas while Christmas. And that I think, by the way, that that's kind of what we're circling around here, that like if you think of the modern idea of Christmas, one of the things that's Christmassy is Charles Dickens is a Christmas Carol or adaptations of it. But then if you go back and you look at uh, Dickens's Christmas Carol, you can kind of see it as a a big long disquisition on the true meaning of Christmas, which is sounds a lot dumber than it actually turns out to be as an idea for like what to make a novella be about because what Christmas is for him is, is really kind of complicated and strange. And there are certain parts of it that they're like ideas that don't really seem to fit together to us anymore that evidently for him were part of the, the one big, you know, plum pudding bolus that is Christmas. (laughs) So like, I mean, one of those is clearly connection to other people. Like that's one of them. And that's, that's definitely there and all it's probably the main one, but I'm curious, what do you think some of the other ones are? I mean, I, I can add. I'll add one. Throw one in the mix. Dickens claims that Christmas is both the holiday that God made when he was a child and the holiday that exists at the time of year when people are most desperate for help. <laughs> and these two huh. things have an overlap in the joy that children have in stories about people helping other people, like hero stories, stories of nice people saving people who are lost. Uh, and Tiny Tim is my, I mean, you could say he's a Christ figure, but even more than that, he sort of stands in for the Christmas Jesus in that he loves to tell stories about people helping each other. And he also represents this great need this great unmet need, material need for assistance in the winter, in the dead of winter, right? So it's interesting to think of it. There's no, oh my God, there's no there's no war on Christmas in A Christmas Carol. The idea that Christmas is the time when everybody has a party and buys presents 
is totally overlapping with the idea that Christmas is a religious holiday because it's from the perspective of a child for whom religiosity is experienced as a sort of present giving as, as a sort of like, Oh, wow, look at this fun thing. And is bereft of all of the other dimensions of religiosity that come with, you know, dry paternalism and alienation and repression. Um, It's a very unrepressed holiday. I mean, Jordan, I think you had some feelings about that. Yes. So like one, actually, I want want to stay on the religion thing for a minute, but we'll come back to that because I was actually really struck by how, how non-religious most of the book is. Mm -hmm. Like there's definitely, there are a lot of people out there in the world and we're in Dickens's time as well, I would bet, who, if you told them like, all right, we're going to write a novella about the true meaning of Christmas, there would be a big section about Jesus in there. Yes, like the yes, the, th- yes. the third ghost would just be Jesus, and you'd watch the whole nativity <laughs> or something like that. Like definitely, it's it's definitely a Christian book. Like they there are a couple of tossed off lines where it's like we're gonna not talk about the Jesus side of it, but really, how can you separate it? I think is one of mm-hmm. them, like almost word for word. And Tiny Tim is um, <laughs> the messed up thing with Tiny Tim is when he's like, you know, I bet that like we should go to church because then the people in the church can see how all I'm all I'm all crippled and that'll remind them about how Jesus used to heal cripples. I guess not me, but, you know, that was nice when that happened. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. It's an actual thing that he says. Not not me, I guess, but the rest of it is an actual thing he says. But, like, it's it's not a major part of it. Like, at at one point when Scrooge has his big awakening, there's a sentence where it's like, he went to church, full Mm -hmm. stop. Nothing about the church experience. It's just like a a thing that you do. But yes, the the notion of the helplessness of people at Christmas and it being super cold and all that is a constant, constant theme through that. And I guess if you if you already kind of have been brought up in 19th century British society and have had kind of Christmas, more religious Christmas narratives drilled into you, the kind of helplessness and uh, fragileness of the Holy Family at that moment is probably a, a sort of a resonating chord with it all. But yeah, I was I was kind of expecting. I was I was waiting for when is the really Jesusy line or two going to come in here? And there was a lot less of it than I thought. There's Ma- more. Uh, Matt, I mean, you have the, a- well, there's more. I I do. I actually want to get. I want to get to it. But the the I'm interested in that because I think there is there's a tendency in among religious people to sort of play to play against. Uh, they do the, they do the opposite of what Stanley Fish suggested we do when we read Paradise Lost, right? They, they sort of presume that God is God, right? And the, the sort of the precarity, the vulnerability of the situation of, uh, you know, Mary, the, the unwed teenage mother, right? And, uh, and Joseph and like trying to find shelter in the inn, uh, and not being turned away and turned away and not being able to find shelter, you know, the, that this is not, and the, the sort of the, the kind of economic status and all the, the social status and all of these things, like there's a tendency to kind of play against that and to imagine, to imagine a nativity scene, to, to imagine a kind of, you know, romanticized, uh, sort of, 
pastoral version of like, you know, laying, laying in the manger as though manger were, were, uh, a word for crib, <laughs> like, you right, know, right, downy, right. downy bassinet, and yeah. not, yeah, bassinet, like downy, you know, hay filled bassinet as though the hay were there to cushion the young infants sleeping and not as food for animals. Because of course, manger, uh, is, Malangia. yeah, from mangia or manger <laughs> or, you know, the, it means feeding trough. <laughs> Manja, when you're here, you're holy family. <laughs> um, yeah, that's. Are you talking about the, the, the uh, infinite There's, and no, the infinite there's no room yeah. in the inn, but come around to where the animals sleep in the stable, and I'll give you some hospitaliano. <laughs> um, I think there's a tendency to play against that and to kind of think, well, God is God. And like to imagine this as a, as a, you know, cozy, as kind of a cottage core scene rather than, uh, right, right. As a kind of aesthetic choice rather than being a sign of destitution and vulnerability. Right, right, right. But it's not, it's not like a stable where the animals live. It's a nursery that has been given a pimped out stable theme. By yeah, it's like exhibit. a petting, they got a petting zoo. Like Mary and Joseph got a petting zoo for the birth of their child, Jesus. Um, so that's, you know, that, that like, but it's, it, I mean, it is interesting to see, to see people as fellow travelers to the grave is to see their vulnerability and sort of connecting, like connecting, you know, God incarnate as an infant with vulnerability with the vulnerability of an infant and also kind of connecting it to the vulnerability of the kind of the coldest and darkest uh, point of the year or the darkest anyway, maybe not the coldest depends on where you live, I guess. But that like, um, you know, that sort of recognition, that recognition of vulnerability actually sort of militates against what at least was the prevailing, um, you know, kind of Christmas, uh, uh, not not stated outright, but the kind of Christmas assumption, you know, in my, uh, though I'm Catholic and the assumption's a whole nother thing. Don't get me started. Um, yeah, here's the thing. Here's the thing I noticed on this particular, uh, read, read through. I, you know, I am familiar with more. I, I guess there was a version of this that, that Dickens performed live that was cut down to maybe, you know, a hundred, 110 minutes. Um, so that it, you know, it could be done in one comfortable sitting rather than this is, I don't know, 30,000 words is what probably two and a half or three hours, which is, I guess maybe within intermission, but like, um, and p- people presumably had longer attention spans back then, but the, uh, the, uh, there was a shorter version and, and it's the one that I am sort of more familiar with where some of the more specific, um, it's the 1840s. Are we proper? Are we properly Victorian yet? Some of the more specific mid 19th century, I'll say stuff, um, is, is elided and it's more the, you know, more the, the, like the comedy of man, um, stuff that, that makes it in. Um, when, when I saw, when I saw Patrick Stewart, uh, do this as a, a one man performance. He made just a meal of the Fezziwig sequence, uh, just, you know, and got, several standing ovations for his like, you know, polkaing around the stage uh in, you know, imitation of of Fezziwig and his calves which glowed like moons. Um the but the the yeah that that and then I mean there's one I saw Jefferson Mays who won the Tony for I Am My Own Wife and is a kind of a you know celebrated uh one person show performer did a version of this directed by Michael Arden um that I that I saw in Los Angeles and I, I'm sure it would have in in 2019 i'm sure it would have gone to broadway and been just a huge uh 
limited, uh, you know, limited what uh, 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 short engagement, limited engagement. Limited there, engagement. We, there, yep. there we go. I used to speak uh, English fluently. Then I read some Charles Dickens, uh, you know, and just standing room only like people fighting in the streets, uh, you know, Hamilton level of, of trying to get into it. It was wonderful. It was wonderful and uh did did it as kind of uh, really played up the gothic horror uh aspects of it and did it in almost total darkness uh just a few lighting effects and sound effects with a, with a microphone on the on the voice and um almost a, like a magic trick like level of changes of scenery uh in in the darkness it was really really quite something um to see but that was like really about the terror and the um the supernatural element uh of it and being scared by the ghosts and and things like this he, but uh, reading the the novella this time what i what i noticed was all of the the thing that stood out to me anyways unusual was all the scenes of exertion um was all the times when someone is red in the face or when someone is panting or when someone is described as like running and, uh, you know, someone, someone is like, uh, tickled or someone is like, uh, that doesn't literally happen, but you feel like it does, right? Like, uh, there are these kind of periods of exertion punctuated by, you know, punctuated by rest. When Bob Cratchit comes, comes in the door, uh, carrying tiny Tim on, uh, on his back in the Christmas present scenes, um, you know, he's, he's described as kind of red faced and panting because he had, uh, been his blood horse. He had been his like warm blooded steed, you know, in, uh, in running. And the, the, the way the, the boy in the fifth stave dashes away to buy the turkey in the window. How much is that turkey in the window? And that like, uh, but, but Scrooge doesn't care. He'll pay anything for it, right? The, the, he, he couldn't have run faster if he had been a bullet fired from a cannon or a cannonball fired from a cannon. He, is you know what the image is um that there there are all of these there are all of these um things that point to the sort of physical difficulty uh the the really mundane physical difficulty of living of exerting yourself during that time when Scrooge was an apprentice to, to bring down the shutters on the, the Fezzi wig, uh, home office, right? Like he and Dick, his fellow apprentice, like run out and they, they return red faced and panting. You know, you can, you can sort of see in your mind's eye, their breath, you know, crystallizing in the air as they, as they exhale into the, into the cold. And the, you know, then all of the, all of the parties and all of the kind of the games, the, the really physical games that are, that are, that are being played, like, uh, like blind blind man's bluff or um uh or the dancing at the Fezziwigs or or stuff like that i'm not sure what this this has to do with the the true meaning of the true meaning of christmas but if you're like tempted to reduce this to a you know to a kind of like special effects uh extravaganza you know or you're you're tempted to reduce it to a um you know a sentimental or or god forbid kind of treacly uh you know, thing about, about fellow feeling and empathy. Like I, I, you know, I defy you to make sense of all of the stuff that is very corporeal. It's very, you know, that's really very much about the, um, 
that's really much about the the kind of the exertions of the body and the toll that those those exertions take on the body in the in the dead of winter. Anyway, that's that's where I noticed. I'm not I'm not sure what that has to do with with Christmas. Uh, after all, um, I mean, I think that it's uh you you could ask whether Christmas is a sort of low energy relaxing holiday or whether <laughs> it's a high a high energy like um. Energy. I don't know the right word for it. The opposite of relaxing, right? Is it an upper or a downer? And like, I think for Dickens, Christmas is definitely an upper, not, not a not a downer. Yeah, yeah. stimulant. Yeah, um, sure, sure. That all the. I mean, there's all this stuff. There's all. The, I mean, there's all this food. There's all this sensation. I mean, there's not really a lot of gift giving, right? That doesn't seem to be a part of much of the celebrations. But there's a great deal of sociability. There's a great deal of laughing and sort of clapping on the back. There's like hugging and and uh, and eating, you know. Um, and the the sort of the physicality of this is very is is very striking. At least that's what I got through it on the got from it on this read through in particular. The food is such a huge part of it, right? Who, like, like George R. R. Martin level, right? Yeah. Yeah. George R. R. Martin, Brian Jacks, uh, you know, Anthony Bourdain even. <laughs> like there there's there's you could make a um a short but still substantial uh story out of just the the lists of foods where it's like there was roast beef and there was boiled beef and oysters and ducks and chestnuts. Usually without the and he goes into what is that, asyndeton, right? This is like, you know, boiled beef, roast beef, capons, turkeys, this, that, that. Um and this happens like constantly throughout the book. Um, I would say that food is easily 10 times more important than presents. The presents are there, but they're kind of like dashed off and it seems to only be for the children. Right. Yeah. Right. And that, that like, and the food, the food is always very, um, bombastic even when it's small and the set and it's it's actually kind of nicely handled in the the first cratchit scene where it's like look you you could call it a small like it was a wonderful pudding it was crackling from the oven it had little raisins studded at regular intervals about it like they were worried about whether it would like come off or whether it would puff up right but like it was the best now you could call it small but you'd be an <laughs> asshole <laughs> a right. heretic one of the more religious moments yeah <laughs> that I, like I you know like all hail this ball of dessert this giant rugby ball of dessert i loved the little hurt people hurt people moment where everyone briefly considers that maybe a thief has stolen the pudding and you could almost see like something like the never ending story two, where there's a magic, which like passes over the main character's face. And it's like, Oh no, they're giving into the nothing. Like the evil negative Christmas feeling is taking over because there's, they're being greedy about the pudding. They don't have right. They're thinking about the world doing bad things to them rather than good things. And, uh, and that's making them lose the Christmas spirit. But then the pudding shows up with its steam and smoke. Uh, my two favorite food moments are, the description of how nice it is of the shopkeepers to hang the grapes up in the window so that when people walk by, they get to see the grapes and their mouths water at the deliciousness of it, uh, even though they don't get to eat them. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. that's very nice of them. <laughs> There's a very interesting thing that goes on with the the shopkeepers and also the violin player at the Fezziwig's party. Or uh. like, so like one of the one of the I think the the key important things of Christmas for Dickens is that it's a day that you get off work, 
Right? Yes. Like Scro- Scrooge is really bad in that he would rather have his his people come in and work on Christmas. The fact that you get to stop working is very important. But then, of course, like the you know that violinist that was a gig for him, and all of the shopkeepers are clearly working. So like Dickens needs to needs to square that circle, and he really goes out of his way to give those particular employees a kind of interiority where they're not in it for the money, but they're in it for the Christmas spirit. So there's a line about how like the the shopkeepers have uniforms where they're like there's a heart shaped brooch or something that's keeping the apron on, and he says that like they're they're so full of you know fellow feeling and Christmas spirit or whatever that it could have been their own hearts that they were wearing on their sleeves. Oh, it's their it organ. It's their that. organ of benevolence. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is from a line about uh, about Fezziwig's organ of benevolence that I, I wrote into the chat being like, any guesses on what that's supposed to be? <laughs> I've just been poisoned by the internet. When I see like somebody's organ and it's not specified, I'm right. like, that's his wang. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's like, and it's also sort of like from his to- you, you from his toes to his head or from his toes up to his eyeballs or from his toes to the tips of his hair or something like that, right? Like this is, you know, this is one of these things that you just expect to hear. And from his toes to his organ of benevolence, even if you're, you're not a perv like Jordan and you think it's his heart, right? Like it's three, two thirds, three quarters of the way up his body. Like, what is that? What does that even mean? What is that even an image of, you know, feeling the Christmas Arguably, You want to be, you want to be real cute. It's because at Christmas you're supposed to turn off your head and let your heart take the lead, right? Sure. Yeah, I guess I thought it was his brain. I thought the brain was the sexiest organ. Uh, <laughs> no, it's really? Have you looked at them? The they're skin. they're like they're like scrambled eggs made out of jello. They're they're not sexy <laughs> at all. They do look kind of like a they do look kind of like a, a jello mold. Uh Jordan, what was the horniest moment in uh in a Christmas carol for you? So this is another thing from my notes, which is that like Charles Dickens is surprisingly horny for Christmas. It's it's yes. very very strange. Well, woe um, betide, woe betide the single man who looked upon those four sisters. They knew what they were doing. Those bees knew what they were doing yeah. <laughs> with their makeup and their dresses and their paint and all the art, you know, the uh, of their appearance. So, like, honorable mention has to go to the the game of blind man's buff at uh, Scrooge's buff? nephew's house, where, like, mm-hmm. I think it's the nephew's friend, Topper, is just, like, chasing uh, his, um, the, the nephew's, like, plump cousin, I think they say, around the room, and uh, they're having a grand old time together. Uh, but the, the, the horniest moment... So we have to we have to take back and, and prep this by saying that throughout the story, the narrator is quite active. Uh, Matt, you say that this was something that sometimes Dickens would perform live, and it kind of makes sense. It definitely um, gives you the effect that somebody is telling you this story. Yeah. And at, at one point, there's a hilarious point where he's like, the, the ghost of Christmas past was like, as close to you as I am now. And uh, in spirit, I'm right at your elbow. So it's sort of like, for the purposes of this metaphor, imagine that I'm standing right next to you. Right. Okay, the ghost was as close to him as I am close <laughs> to you now. But mostly those things are like a sentence long. But then there's this passage uh, where, um, what is this? This is when... It's the spirit of Christmas past is showing the current life of the girl that Scrooge was engaged to who leaves him because he turns into into a Scrooge. And like you get to see a little bit of her future. 
And there's a kind of a long passage, but I think it's important to read all of it. Uh, the noise in this room was perfectly tumultuous, for there were more children there than Scrooge in his agitated state of mind could count. And unlike the celebrated herd in the poem, there were not 40 children conducting themselves like one, but every child was conducting himself like 40, or conducting itself like 40. Uh, very nice wordplay, Dickens. The consequences were uproarious beyond belief, but no one seemed to care. On the contrary, the mother and daughter laughed heartily and enjoyed it very much, and the latter, soon beginning to mingle in the sports, got pillaged by the young brigands most ruthlessly. And at this point, Dickens, the narrator, like tears the fourth wall down and throws it out the window and just jumps into the story and says, what would I not have given to be one of them? Though I never could have been so rude. No, no, I wouldn't for the wealth of all the world have crushed that braided hair and torn it down. And for that precious little shoe, I wouldn't have plucked it off. God bless my soul to save my life. As to measuring her waist in sport, as they did, uh, bold young brood, I couldn't have done it. I should have expected my arm to have grown round it for a punishment and never come straight again. And yet I should have dearly liked, I own, to have touched her lips, to have questioned her that she might have opened them, to have looked upon the lashes of her downcast eyes and never raised a blush, to have let loose waves of hair, an inch of which would be a keepsake beyond price. In short, I should have liked, I do confess, to have had the lightest license of a child, and yet to have been man enough to know its value. And then that ends. So it's sort of like, you know, the story is going along and he's like, wait a minute, it's time for the narrator to have a incest-adjacent sex fantasy about this minor character. <laughs> like, everyone, stop the story. Dickens is going to town. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? I mean, it's what was weird. your... It's really weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Guess. It's weird, yes. Why is it weird? It's weird because... Well, it's weird for a couple of reasons. It's weird relative to what you would expect because we have had it drilled into ourselves so much that the Victorian era is the era of sexual repression and of people really being very stiff and stodgy and Christmas Carol adaptations and productions don't generally involve lots of groping, uh, which the book has a bunch of, uh, more or less. So... That's weird because it's unexpected relative to what we remember. It's also weird because I don't think we think of Christmas as a holiday for getting down. And it seems like there's something going on with Christmas being a holiday for getting down. Is it a time where people traditionally propose to each other? Is that the issue? Is it just that it's a time when youthful people celebrate and old people get to hang out with young people and they get to watch how young people act and think about how they used to be? Old, uh, old people celebrate too, like the old salts in the lighthouse or the, the what, the miner, like great grandpa miner who is like singing his lusty Christmas carol and then like falls, falls silent when he, uh, uh, when it's over and he's like sort of diminished in, in vi- vitality when it's over. It, I mean, it's weird also because the the uh usually when the narrator intrudes into the story in a christmas carol it's to moralize um mm. and this is to to do something else it's to sort of express uh you know to express a a, a wish <laughs> i guess a desire. a desire sure yeah um that like you know on its on its surface is like hey i wish i could have played i wish i could have played with the kids uh you know but um but in its yeah, in its odd I don't know in its odd specificity it's it's very corporeal it it imports it imports a relationship that is not uh, it import it imports a relationship that I you know may may or may not 
be appropriate to Charles Dickens and his imaginary friend, but certainly wouldn't be appropriate to the, um, <laughs> to the, to the, uh, what the boys, the, the little rascals, you know, giving their sister a hard time by pulling her hair. Um, and, so another, yeah. another, I mean, another idea it's weird Scrooge. So Scrooge's psychodrama, right. Is that he is abused as a child and neglected. And because of that, he can't form attachments and he drives himself towards just focusing on work to, because he doesn't believe that anybody really is going to care about him. And he can't form a good attachment with his fiance. His fiance leaves him and he's all alone. And as a result, he wants to be alone from everybody. He thinks everybody else should be alone and he begrudges other people their fun in being reintroduced into you know socialization they don't give scrooge a girlfriend they don't replace his fiance but they have to replace his fiance and as in the thing that he lost needs to be addressed what is it that he lost that he forgot or that he neglected in favor of money and by sublimating it through other sorts of relationships and this weird parasocial relationship between the narrator and the characters, that's weird, I think. Though I think it's probably something a lot of people have experienced, maybe not exactly that way, but the idea of, well, you know, I I am a couple years out of college and I went to the college party and I didn't really do anything, but it really felt nice to see everybody else doing the thing that I feel sad that I didn't do. Um, and I sort of lived vicariously through that, but there's a sexual creepiness there, uh, super duper creepiness. Um, I in, mean, I in, think in, that... in... No, go on. No, no, no. I, I can, I can let you let me end because I, I don't think I have more of value to add to that. <laughs> yes. Okay, okay. No, but I mean, T- I think. T- that no, the... tell me more about this party. I want to about more <laughs> about more creepiness about how creepy a person gets when they're lonely. No, I think we leave that as an exercise to the reader. <laughs> go, go, go get real creepy the... this Christmas, reader. <laughs> Uh, let's save that to pivot to actually, but the, the, um, the notion that there's different kinds of people mingling and that some of them are like of an age and of a relationship where, uh, flirtation, even quite vigorous flirtation is appropriate. And others are either of an age or of a relationship where that would not be appropriate, but they still get to observe it. Right. I think that that is actually, that's part of the whole Christmas deal is that you have these huge collections of people that some of them are very closely related. Some of them are just like any random person on the street. And you have this, this moment for them all to connect. And that is apparently like, we don't get to see the rest of the Victorian year here. But apparently that is like a special occasion that Christmas allows you. Um, If you think about, uh, what is it, Topper and the plump cousin, right, at Scrooge's nephew's party? Topper? I just met her! (laughs) The... uh, the idea is that like they they have like a certain understanding almost right like they're they're maybe uh tacking towards marriage somewhere yeah. down the road but yeah. like th- this is one of the rare occasions where they are allowed to interact with each other and in the ge- the guise of this game of blind men's buff where like you can pretend that you you can't see and the narrator is like all right for the record I'm pretty sure he could see. I don't believe for a minute that he that he couldn't see, which is such a such a hilarious place for the narrator to stand, right? Because it's like, you know, you know whether he can see. You invented these people, Dickens, but like that that's the uh, it, it's beautifully done. Um, they're allowed to touch each other. 
right? And that's something that you you couldn't generally do uh, as a politely raised Victorian person. But Christmas provides you the pretext to do it because so this we is something get that, because we get to behave. We all get to kind of operate under the kind of the useful and enjoyable fiction that we're that we're actually all children all of the time. You know, yeah, that, yeah, it's exactly that, right? Like they're playing this ch- ch- uh, children's game. There's another scene where one of the um, like a, a character is this the clerk that Dickens uh, that that Scrooge kicks out at the very end of the uh, like the first day who like waits in line behind a whole bunch of children to sled down a hill twenty times on his way home, right? Um, like that that notion of the the pleasurable physical exertion comes into the childishness of it yeah. as well, and it's kind of like um, again like in a way that I think we have good reason to find slightly upsetting the sexiness of Christmas is tied up in the notion that Christmas is a time for childish things because like that's the fig, the fig leaf that allows the sexiness to happen. So that like, that's why the narrator is like, Oh man, I wish I could have been one of those children. Cause I would know what was up when I was like stroking her hair. Um. <laughs> so, so this is a bit of a baby it's cold outside problem. Yeah. In that when we I had that see, exact thought. yeah, yeah. When we see somebody, trying to get with uh, somebody else on Christmas and they're expressing reluctance, we assume there's a consent issue when really there might be a social acceptance issue rather than a consent issue. Uh, I mean, I saw it as they're definitely going to get married. I mean, they bring it up. Uh, yeah. But but yeah, I, it never occurred to me reading it that this would have been shameful to do it another time. But of course it would have been. Uh, it's it's a long it's a long time ago. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense to me. Anyway, but so, yeah. uh, can I t- t- pivoting off of this notion of creepiness? I have a question for both of you. Is the fact that a Christmas Carol is a ghost story is that incidental to Christmasness, or are spooky ghosts? Is Christmas a spooky ghost holiday? <laughs> it, it we're in the song. It's supposed to be right. Scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. I it's I don't understand it. I don't I don't get it. But it sounds fun. <laughs> it seems like that's a, a, yeah. There's a very important horror writer, uh, M.R. James, Mr. James, I like to think of him as, um, <laughs> who, like, he he had a day job as some kind of academic, and then he wrote all of his um, very influential and deeply frightening ghost stories. He would, like, always write them every Christmas break, you know? So it's it's not just Dickens. Uh, there's, there's, we have three data points. Right? We've got M.R. James, we've got uh, Christmas Carol, we've got that line in The Most Wonderful Time of the Year. But, like, if... If for Dickens, ghosts are a sort of normal part of Christmas and not a just buckwild thing that he decided to throw into this particular Christmas story, then that I think is a, a pretty profound difference from our modern conception of, yeah. uh, of Christmas. If right? anything, the, the preface to the story seems to suggest that median Christmas is more of a ghost story, spooky, scary thing than what Dickens is doing. Because in the preface, it's a, is it a preface introduction, whatever he calls it, his little argument at the beginning. It's like, well, I wanted to write you a ghost story that was going to be scary, but was also going to be fun. Uh, and I, I got the sense. Well, I actually listened to it on tape. So I got the sense that he was saying rather than, you know, writing um, that a lot of the other ghost stories are kind of a drag sometimes or like not festive enough. And he wanted to combine the idea of it being positive and festive and sort of appropriate for Christmas, but also being scary and about ghosts. Uh, which hadn't really necessarily been done before. Did, was um, it a good reader, Pete? The, the oh, he was audience? great. Yeah, he was absolutely great. Was, it, me, a per, me, was it a name that we would know, or is it just let me a bring professional him up. You guys talk about something else, and I will 
find out who it was and tell you some of the other things that that person I mean, I, I have a perspective on this, Jordan, which is that I think, I think it's necessary to have something as, um, as sentimental. And I use that in the modern sense and not in the 19th century sense to have something that like kind of goes to such a, you know, uh, fellow feeling and kind of humanity place without the the ghost story without kind of like touching you know touching at the edges of the horrible it would be unearned right what what if he like well i mean what if the story were like you know look i i had a i, I had a long hard night wrestling with the logic of my position and i've decided that being selfish actually is not great for for a number of reasons and here are my i have five principal arguments one in each of the five staves of this uh, in the five chapters of this this story and now you know god bless us everyone now you know by a by a goose not a goose a turkey uh by a turkey i don't know why I think it's a goose. Um, the, uh, that would not, I don't know. It, it seems like it, it seems unearned, you know? And like one can of I the, just, can I just say I was floored by the Turkey. I was so <laughs> sure that it was a goose that he got. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I can, I feel I, like I can see it. I can see a, a, film or a tv adaptation of this with scrooge leading out the window looking up at him which is the wrong shot it should be looking down at the boy but scrooge saying buy buy me a goose the biggest goose in all of merry england and, or you know some such and it's not it's not a goose it's a turkey and uh, i'm i'm here to tell you that uh turkey is the inferior poultry to to goose shots fired uh, yeah, I wondered about this because there's a line also where like when, when you're at the Cratchits where there's some kind of line about the idea that like, oh, well, it was only a goose, right? Um, it was uh, – there was a line in the, the notion that like um, it's as if this was the only time that they ate goose this year, which honestly, because they were so poor, it might have been. Is it not – like, were I, turkeys foreign and, and exotic or were they like yeah, – Are they American? Is, it, is that what it is? And that, you could like, like just get a goose. You could just pull a goose off the Thames or something. Thing and like eat yeah. and you know and eat it because like i i saw a goose in the uh the freezer of my local grocery store that was like 150 dollars you know <laughs> like i've never cooked a goose in my life i feel like i'm probably better off than the cratchits are in most uh in most metrics but in terms of like access to goose they are uh they are well above me your goose your gq your goose quotient is very <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so they're they're poor but they're rich in the important things but i think the yeah. thing I think that the, I, you know, to me, the, the function of the terror, like the, the function of the ghost is to inspire terror and the function of the terror is to, to kind of earn the awakening that, that comes at the end. I mean, that's a little simplistic, I guess, but that's how I think about it. So the book was read by a guy named Simon Stanhope, who is a British theater and voiceover actor who uh, did it for a, I mean, the book's in the comment in the public domain. So it's for an, you know, iTunes, YouTube, audiobook company called Bite Size Audio. Uh, I believe of all the credits I'm looking at, I know that, Matt, you're a subscriber to the uh, Everyman Theater in Chetlinham and the Sherrington Repertory Theater Company, uh, as well as the British Shakespeare Company, which is different from the Royal Shakespeare Company. But uh, I'm sure that the thing that he's worked on that you might be most excited about everybody here is he's apparently one of the voices on the UK edition of Paw Patrol. But uh, <laughs> he, he sounds a bit like uh, like um, Lane from Mad Men, that actor who's also in Foundation and Chernobyl. What's his name? Jared Harris. Uh, yeah, he sounds a bit like Jared Harris. 
and he's done a bunch of audio drama and stuff, and it was very good. Jared Harris so is also yeah. King George, isn't he? In the uh, yes, 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 in the Crown. The Crown. That's right. Exactly. George, I forget which number five. But uh, yeah, I'll link I'll link to the audiobook uh, version that you can listen to on YouTube. It's three and a half hours and it was pretty good. And I liked it a lot. So you guys were talking about the goose, right? Do you think they're better? Do you think by giving him a turkey instead of that totally awesome goose, Scrooge ruined Christmas? Because <laughs> <laughs> turkeys are because I mean, if you were if someone were having a duck and you got them a totally awesome chicken, I think of that as a downgrade. Uh, is that am I, is that, am I being accurate there? I know it's harder to get right because you have to score the skin. <laughs> this is very fatty. Yeah, it's, it's also like so. This was something that I was uh, I was wondering if maybe either of you understood what was going on here. Like the the Cratchits have a goose, which they then take to some kind of communal oven to get baked, right? Like, and and apparently this is a thing that a lot of the poor people do. Is they are you saying they, they hot bring, box the goose? <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> okay. um, but anyway, like the goose is filled with stuffing and it's a whole elaborate ritual. And there's a procession of poor laborers going to this bakery where all of the geese are going to be baked together. And then it's so, like, that's all happening. And they must have like stuffed that goose the night before easily. Maybe they haven't brought it to the bakery yet. But then like, here comes this guy from the shop with a giant, you know, undressed raw turkey. Right. And it's like, da da da. now you've got this too. <laughs> it's sort of like, <laughs> <laughs> we we don't have an oven that can handle a goose, let alone this this turkey the size of a, a, a human child. Uh, like, <laughs> what kind yeah. of white elephant are you dangling on us here? I like how in the Jordan, book- Jordan for Christmas, I have a great present for you for Christmas, Jordan. Seat covers for a Maserati. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they're, the they're just the best covers play. in the entire window. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, but exactly. but to be clear, seat covers that unless you do something with them will turn into a mass of rotting flesh within like two days. <laughs> Did you guys in the book also feel like Scrooge thinks that the turkey is funny to a greater the degree than he usually does in the adaptations? <laughs> like, oh, man, would it be hilarious when Bob Cratchit gets this that like part of Christmas is also pranks and tricks and laughing um, yeah, right. Because yeah. he he also pranks um he pranks Cratchit when he comes into the office, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which he doesn't do in Muppet Christmas Carol. He goes to Cratchit's house and calls him out for not being at work. But in the book, he goes to the office and is like, "Haha, I hope Cr- I'll go early, and then if Cratchit is late, I can yell at him, and it'll be hilarious." <laughs> Yeah. Uh, which is oh, just glorious. Yeah. That, um, I love that. Like how I'm, I'm hoping to, I'm hoping to catch him out. I'm hoping to make him, you know, to, to see that he's late for the, for work. And, and indeed he did. And indeed he did, says Jared, Jared Harris. And indeed he did. He, he was which, I mean, although it's uh, it's easy to make fun of, but it is also like thematically it's appropriate, right? Because as we've said, Scrooge is the product of this traumatic childhood, and then like after he has his uh, his visitation, he wakes up. And he says, like, I'm a baby. I like being a baby. So, like, he, he's gone into a sort of second re, re-childhooding. There's, a, there's probably a technical uh, psychological term that I'm Regression? I'm regression. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, like, but it's, it's good, right? He's supposed to regress. And, like, now he will grow up appropriately and form a web of social connections the way that he wasn't able to the first time around. Sure. 
sort of sort of unclear why he wasn't able to right i mean i guess the boarding school was pretty terrible but like his uh we see him go home from the the boarding school he's got a great relationship with his sister at that with his, point with his sister it's, but i think it's in the cl- the clues in what the sister says which is like oh father doesn't beat us nearly as much as before <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know like he's he's right. ever so he's ever so kind you know the the yeah that 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 the he sort of but I think it's that he he sort of got got sent away and I I totally I'm with you Jordan on like I can totally relate to uh, little Scrooge sitting alone at the you know uh, like there had to be a rule made in my household that uh, my household the, the household I grew up in that I was not allowed to bring books to the dinner table certainly not on holidays because you know <laughs> I just uh, I just carried I just carried one around with me wherever. Uh, wherever i went though uh yeah, in the in the original he had a game boy and they just it just really broke the whole pathos of the whole situation yeah when scrooge goes back he's like oh look there's mario <laughs> it's chris pratt and mario wouldn't that be great though if as like alibaba and the 40 thieves show up uh wouldn't it be great if mario actually <laughs> appears to you in uh you know just in the in the flesh in his overalls um in order to uh you know whenever and anytime you turn on the game boy i i think we're getting loopy guys we've had a little too much grog our can our, our can of grog Bold wine Bold wine <laughs> is uh yeah the 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 glassware the cratchit's glassware which extended to like Two tumblers and a souvenir mug from Disneyland that uh, ah. <laughs> that they pass that they pass around in order to toast. Well, uh, uh, thanks very much, everyone, for listening. I think we'll we'll probably leave our our Christmas celebration there. Uh, thanks for another great year of of overthinking it, and we you know we're glad that uh, glad that uh, you you uh, come back for <laughs> more of our musings and ramblings about the various things that we we talk about. About. uh you know and thanks thanks jordan and pete for uh observing this particular holiday tradition it would be fun to to make the we could do a we could do an adaptation uh next year and i do like uh it's not quite the ted lasso wolf pack diamond dogs uh die the ted lasso diamond dogs but i do uh i do like our our you know thirty thousand word uh you know book club here that we that we have the you know mm-hmm. the um, the works that take like an hour or two to read uh, that are interesting and fun uh, to talk about. I really, really enjoy long talks that. on brief classics. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> take a take a long talk off a short book. <laughs> uh, so I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, thank you all for uh, for doing it. So however however you keep keep Christmas well or poorly or not at all. Uh, you know, hope you're keeping it safely this year. And uh, as Tiny Tim says, it probably <laughs> doesn't deserve. deserve. And to think that was the entirety of the plot of The Matrix Resurrections. 